Well, if you love the Lord, say amen. I'm glad you're here on the Lord's Day uh, to celebrate what God has done. And today we're going to continue our series entitled Countercultural. Uh, last week I began this series. If you were not here last week, I hope that you'll go back and uh, go on our, our social media account, on our website, and I hope that you'll listen to that particular sermon from last week if you did not hear it. The reason that I ask that is because just, just like the opening sermon of most of the series that I do, it, it kind of lays a foundation for the remainder of the messages. And uh, this one in particular, uh, this series in particular, I feel like that first sermon really lays a foundation. As last week, I talked about how we're supposed to have counter-cultural goals in life. Obviously, the uh, driving point of this series has to do with the fact that God has called us to be different. God has called us to think differently, live differently, act differently than everybody else in the world. I, I, used, I used to not really believe that. I used to believe that we can be like everybody else. We're just supposed to be moral. And I believe that God has called us to something more. Last week, I asked you to do me a favor. I asked you to memorize Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 through verse 11. I believe that those two verses provide us with significant spiritual goals, uh, that we are to have a goal to have a heart like Jesus, that we're supposed to have spiritual goals to where we're willing to suffer for Jesus and even willing to pray that the Lord would show us how we're supposed to suffer for him or how we're supposed to sacrifice for him because ultimately, our goal is to be resurrected with Christ and to live in eternity with Him. And so those, my sermon was really kind of formulated around those two verses and those four goals. Well, today, I want to, I want to kind of try to start to flesh this out in different areas of our life. And particularly today, I want to talk about countercultural leadership and we're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 18, and I'll read verses 1 through 7 in a minute. Our culture is going in a direction. I believe that the Bible explains it pretty clearly, that the vast majority of this, uh, of this world and the people in it are going down this broad road that leads to destruction, that broad is the way easy is the way, and there's a lot of people going down that road that leads to destruction. Our Bible teaches us that we're to go in a different direction, that we're to walk a narrow, a narrow road, and that road is hard, and only a few are able to find it. We're going to read about such a person today, in, um, in uh, uh, his name is Hezekiah, and we're going to read about him today in 2 Kings chapter 18, and I believe that this hard road, this narrow road, is going to be played out in various leadership positions that God has placed you in this world. Now, there's a, there's a lot that we can read about leadership in our world, cultural leadership, that is. In fact, it's almost as if leadership is emphasized greatly in our world, and it's, it's exalted in our society as, uh, as this moral good, um, and the words like influence and power and position and goals and uh, casting vision and garnering a fellowship. It's as if these things, from a cultural perspective, are, are exalted as things that we should pursue. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think there's a danger, though, whenever we begin to try to transfer some of these things over into our spiritual life. 
Uh, this past week, I counted the number of books concerning leadership that I, I have on my shelf that I've read over the years. I counted 77 books uh, that, I have, that I have read on leadership. And many of, the, many of these books were given to me uh, by other pastors and Christian leaders or seminary professors, or they were books that I had gotten at, uh, at Christian uh, conferences. But I find that in a lot of these books that uh, were given to me in Christian context are, are really nothing more than just uh, books that are embracing kind of a cultural understanding of leadership. Uh, and there's, there's books that you've read uh, that I have, the books like Good to Great by Jim Collins, uh, or Servant Leadership by Robert Greenleaf, who is not a, is not a Christian book at all. Uh, but then there's, there's a lot of books that I read like 20 years ago, and you probably have too, uh, by a guy named John Maxwell, his most famous being uh, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And while these books are good, um, these books really embrace more of a cultural understanding of leadership. Um, and not all, not all the books that I've read on leadership do that, but some of these definitely do. I've heard a lot of definitions of leadership in Christian contexts um, that I feel like are really kind of cultural, such as uh, a definition by Peter Drucker that says uh, a leader is just someone who has followers. Or here's one by Warren Bennis that says the capacity to translate vision into reality. Or how about this one by Bill Gates, uh, leaders empower others. And then of course John Maxwell, probably one of the more cultural definitions of leadership that is known in the church world, and that is that leadership is influence. So I've attended a lot of uh, Christian leadership conferences, and sometimes I have found myself sitting there thinking, you know, I don't necessarily have to be a Christian to agree with the content that's being given to me. And so I started beginning to feel that there's kind of a problem in Christian circles of how we understand leadership. And so uh, I'm not saying that none of these things are helpful, but I don't believe that cultural definitions and forms of leadership inform us as to how we're to be spiritual leaders in the world. I think they fall short of a biblical model. And that's what, uh, that's what I want this message to be about today, is not so, and, and I hope you hear me on this, is not so much about how God has called us to be leaders in the church world, like within the church, but how God has called us to be countercultural Christian leaders out in the world. And I, I want to I be clear about that. Now, admittedly, most of you know more about uh, and experience more about the struggles of how to be a Christian leader out in the world than someone like me, who basically my job is the church world and figuring out how to mobilize all of us to reach the world. Um, but you're in specific roles in the world and in society in which you are leading. And there are some of you here today that have significant influence in our world or you will one day have significant influence in the world. And here's the reality. The reality is the more you're involved in the system of the world and the more that you're leading in and among the systems of the world, the harder it is to cling to Christ. 
I mean, after all, you just ask a professional athlete or a politician or a famous actor or musician or some higher-up CEO in business who's a Christian, and they will tell you that the higher up you go in these areas, the more difficult it, it, it becomes. This does not mean that you should not seek to have influence and position in society in our world. This is that's not at all what I mean. Uh, I mean to to say today, um, but I do believe that there is a countercultural way that you're going to be faced with at some point. There's a countercultural way in which you're going to have to live as a Christian and as a leader in society. And so today. I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you some bullet points and some application about how to be a countercultural leader. But for the most part, I want us to look at an example, what I believe to be one of the best examples in the Old Testament of a countercultural leader. Now, all, obviously, we all understand that Jesus is and was the best leader to ever live. Uh, but I want to show you an example today of a guy named Hezekiah from 2 Kings chapter 18, and I know that was a little bit of a, of, of a long way to introduce this, but um, there's really just a couple of things about Hezekiah and about his example that I want to point out to you today that I, I think that will help you and benefit you in looking at him as a model, and of course, obviously, ultimately, as, as Jesus as our model, but by looking at him, I think there's some ways that will be helpful to you as you lead in an influential way within our world and, and within our society within whatever positions that you may have in this life. So uh, stand with me just to uh, give focus to God and honor to his word. Uh, stand with me as we read 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, about this, this godly leader, this king of Judah named Hezekiah. It says, In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. Now let me push pause. Let me push pause for a minute. There were three kings of Israel during the United Kingdom. The kingdom divided, and then there were 19 kings of the northern kingdom of Israel and 20 kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. You will find no king of the northern king of Israel that says that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. You will find very few kings of the southern kingdom of Judah that make this statement, and even fewer kings that it is stated that they did according to all that David, his father, had done. That's talking about King David, who lived probably three centuries before him. Now look at what he did. Verse 4 says, He removed the high places, he broke the pillars, he cut down the Asherah, he broke in pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. 
Very few kings in his day did this. No kings of Israel did this. Very few kings of Judah did this. Verse 5. He trusted in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. Father, today I pray that you would use the reading of your word and the preaching of your word, Lord, to encourage us to be leaders in this world and not leaders in a cultural way, leaders in a spiritual way. And we offer this prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, I know that some of you here today don't consider yourselves leaders. I hope that you, I hope that you won't tune this message out for that reason. I hope that you'll hang with me as we talk about some ways that we're supposed to have a discipling influence on people in our world. You, you probably have more influence than you think. Uh, in your workplace, and among your family, and among your friends. But I want to start by asking you a question. What type of situation would you choose as a leader? If God was going to assign you a leadership task, and you were to be able to choose whatever context, context that might would be, what type of context would you choose? How would you like to have an assignment that is as close to a situation on earth, as, as perfect as possible, an Eden-like situation, as, as, as perfect of a situation as possible, this size outside of heaven. How would you like to pick an assignment as a leader to where society and government and the economy and your security around you, the religion, everything was about as good as it could be, and you received that leadership assignment. I want you to know that this is what God gave his people in the Old Testament. God gave them a literal government that was about as perfect as it could be. It was very Eden-like in, in nature, very Garden of Eden-like in nature. He gave them the best land in all of ancient civilization. It was called the Fertile Crescent. If, uh, if, if, you've, if you've even had one Western civilization class, uh, you probably know what the uh, Fertile Crescent was in the ancient world. God gave them that land that the Bible said was a land flowing with milk and honey. He gave them a government structure that was about as perfect and about as good as it could be. After all, it had God as, as its head. He gave them laws that would lead to their nation being healthy and, prosper, and prosperous. He gave them a religious structure that perfectly, though temporarily, pleased God and pointed to Christ. He gave that nation something that he has never given to any other nation on the face of the earth. He gave them a promise of blessing and stability and permanent national security. He has never given that to any other nation, but he gave it to them, and he said it all hinges on one major rule. 
It's, I find it kind of ironic that that's, there was really only one rule that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. And here we pretty much, in the Old Testament, God gives his people pretty much just one main rule. He said, worship me only and don't turn to idols. That is basically the summation of the entire Old Testament law. Um, love the Lord your God. Keep his, keep his commandments. Worship him only. Don't have any gods before him. And do not turn to idols. Man, if there was ever an easy leadership environment that someone could inherit, certainly that would be it. But man, we're good at messing things up, aren't we? People are so good. I mean, we messed up things in the Garden of Eden. God's people messed up a perfect scenario in the land of Canaan with all of these promises and perfection, and it didn't take long. They asked for a king. They, they tampered with the structure that God had, had put in place with him as head. They asked for a king. They started worshiping idols. And they stopped trusting in God. They, they violated the very first law. And then the kings that came along, they really didn't lead well except for David. David is exalted as the example by which all the kings should follow after. And, we, and I pointed that out a little bit in this scripture that, that I read. That matter of fact, it was said about Hezekiah that he did as David his father did. The nation split in half. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, which had 19 kings before the Assyrians defeated them. And then you had the southern kingdom of Judah, which had 20 kings until Babylon uh, ultimately conquered them. But when Hezekiah comes upon the scene, we had seen 200 years, approximately 200 years leading up to Hezekiah, both nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, spiraling downward and downward in idolatry and bad leadership. This was not an ideal leadership assignment anymore. Things were bad. And so Hezekiah's background made his leadership assignment even more difficult. In the opening scriptures of sec, uh, opening verses of 2 Kings chapter 18, the Bible says that Hezekiah came to power in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah. Hosea was the, uh, the, the last, the, the, the number 19 king, the last king of Israel. And under Hezekiah, as king of Judah, he watched as Hosea was the final king to absolutely run the nation of Israel into the ground. And then it says that Hezekiah was the son of Ahaz. You may have studied about Ahaz. Ahaz ruled, I think, for a couple of decades. I, I can't remember exactly. I have to flip back a few chapters. Uh, but he led, for, he led the nation of Judah for a while. His name I guess you would elevate his name to among the top five, maybe even the top three worst kings of Judah. In fact, if I were to tell you who I believe to be the two worst kings of Judah, 
it would be Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, and Hezekiah's son, um, uh, Manasseh. Sorry, I almost had to flip over. I almost forgot. I believe those would be the two worst kings of Judah. And Ahaz was raised, hopefully, hopefully his godly mother, we think his mother was probably godly, because his father, in my opinion, in my opinion was the second worst king of Judah. The Bible says some pretty bad things uh, about Ahaz, uh, that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. The kings of Israel, by the way, out of the 19 of them, none of them were declared righteous by God. Not one of them. Every single one of them was given a tagline in Scripture. All 19 of the kings of Israel were given the tagline that said they walked in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Jeroboam had set up two golden calves in various places in Israel, had made, had made Samaria the capital city, and told them, don't go to the temple of the Lord anymore. Come worship around these golden calves. And all 19 kings of Israel promoted that and worse. And the Bible says that Ahaz didn't walk in the ways of the kings of Judah or of David, but walked in the ways of those evil kings. Hezekiah grew up under this idolater who worshipped the gods of Syria, worshipped Baal. Ahaz even burned his infant son to Molech, and he defiled the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Now, if that's not bad enough, surrounding Hezekiah, all the other nations, Egypt, Syria, Israel, Assyria, and all the other nations, they were all idolaters. There was not one head of state in the entire world during the time of Hezekiah that wasn't worshiping idols. Hezekiah was the only one. And it's in the midst of this very difficult leadership assignment that Hezekiah shows godly leadership. And we see this in verses 3 through verses 4. You see, cultural perspectives of leadership will tell you that leadership is influence. And the more followers you have, the better the leader that you are. A cultural perspective of leadership will say things like, if you're out there by yourself, you're not a leader, you're just going on a long, lonely walk. But here we see Hezekiah, the only person by himself. And this is the picture, th th this is the picture that we see in all of Scripture. We see Jeremiah put in stocks. We see Elijah being fed by ravens and praying and saying, Lord, it's just me out here. I'm all by myself. And of course the Lord says, no, there's 7,000 of you out there. You just, you just can't see it. And then what about Paul? Paul didn't have a big following. The whole world was against him. Even his friends abandoned him while he was in prison. And what about Jesus? Jesus had all types of people that followed him at first, but then when he said some hard things that really got at the heart of his sacrifice, he said, hey, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And the Bible says that a lot of people turned away and followed him. It was only a few that stayed with him. And by the time he went to that cross, he probably only had John and a couple of women that were with him at the point of his death. 
You see, cultural perspectives of leadership favor making decisions that are popular, doing things that people like, that will ensure that they follow you, that make people happy, that will inspire people with vision, that will empower people for their potential. But Hezekiah went against the grain. The culture wanted idols. That's what the nation of Israel wanted. That's what the people of Judah wanted. That's what all the nations around them wanted. But Hezekiah did something different. He did something radically different from his father. He did something that was really more of a reflection of his grandfather, who was a pretty good king. But what, what he's going to do in these verses, what we see him do is what no king of Israel did, no king in the known world was doing, and only a few kings of Judah had done some of this. He was the only one to do all of this. The Bible says that he did all that was according to David his father. Scripture associates him more with King David than it does with Ahaz, his earthly father. And look what he does. He removed the high places. I don't have time to explain what high places are. These were places of idol worship or place where worshiping the true God was done in an idolatrous, false way. He cut down, he, he broke the pillars. Again, more idolatry. He cut down the Asherah. Asherah, I believe, was, was, a, was a goddess of, uh, of Syria. Uh, he, he took her away. He broke in pieces. Look at this. No one had ever done this. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Y'all remember that bronze serpent that Moses had made for the people to look at? And they looked at it and they were healed. Well, evidently the people of Israel had begun to venerate this, this, this ancient relic and they had begun to use it in worship or perhaps even worship it in a false way. Do you think this was very popular? As he, as he broke down uh, all these things and as he destroyed this bronze serpent that Moses had made, these, these were, these were counter-cultural things that he did. And he also cleansed the temple that his father Ahaz had defiled. He reinstituted the Passover that had been long since forgotten in the nation of Israel. And as a result of this, there was this great revival that swept the nation of Israel. Excuse me, the nation of Judah. He, his was a radical abandon to God. He went against the grain of his culture, and he was the only one that was doing it. And Hezekiah held fast to God. Look what it says right here in verses 5 through verses 7. Because of Hezekiah's leadership, Scripture affirms him in a way that it doesn't affirm any other king of Israel or any other king of Judah during the divided kingdom. It says he trusted in the Lord his God so that there was none like him. Not among the kings of Judah that had come before, not among the kings of Judah that had come after. He was unique. And listen, he was a unique leader in his world, not because he had a great personality, not because he was highly gifted. Not because he had the right strategy. Not because a bunch of people liked him. 
Not because he was, was skilled at casting a vision and setting and attaining goals. Not because he was successful at unlocking people's potential. He, the scripture says this about him. Not because of any cultural leadership principle that you would read in any book that you might read out there on leadership today. He was unique because of his love and his walk with God. There was no other king in his day that trusted the Lord like he did. There was no other king, while he was king, that held fast to the Lord like he did. There was no other king, while he was king, no other king around him, that did not depart from following God and that kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. Do you remember whenever God told through Moses, he told them, he said, your nation is going to be prosperous based upon whether you worship idols or whether you don't. Your prosperity and your success as a nation is going to be founded upon that. That's why godly Hezekiah, he went all the way back to Moses. He went to his Bible to describe the kind of person and the kind of leader that he was going to be in Scripture. He didn't allow uh, culture to inform him. He trusted in the Lord. He held fast in the Lord. He did not depart from following him. There will come a time in your life when you are in some type of position in this world I don't know where you'll be. I don't, I don't know. You may be a business leader. You may be in education. Uh, you, you, may, you may be in uh, local, state, or national government. You, you, you may own, own your own business. I don't know. There will, there will come a time whenever you will be faced with the decision. And I'm not, I'm not talking about a decision in your quiet time, a decision as far as church is concerned. There will be a decision that you will have to make from a secular platform in business, education, wherever you may find that you have influence in this world. You will be faced with the decision, will I trust the Lord in this? Will I hold fast to the Lord in this? Am I going to depart from following the world? Because it's so easy in my business environment or my secular environment, my education environment, my cultural environment where I find myself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a little detour. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna come plowing through this field and I'm going to go around that rock rather than, rather than confronting it. There's going to come a time when you're, you're going to be faced with that decision. Will I depart from following with him or will I keep the commandments that my Bible tells me that I should keep. Listen, you know this better than I do. Really, the only thing that I have ever done has been privileged uh, to, to work in a church. I spent a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of time out in the world, retail, doing various things while I was getting my education. You, you know this better than I do. As you're in business or you're in education or wherever it is that you are out in this world, there is this tug upon you. Every single day 
to not hold fast to the Lord. And the higher up you go in this society in leadership, and the more influence and the stronger platform of leadership you have in our culture and in this world, the more the world is going to try to pull you back and help you to depart from following him. Well, just like in Hezekiah's day, people would be like, you know, we got these high places where we worship. Well, just let us worship at these high places. Don't make us come all the way down to the temple. You see, there were a lot of kings of Judah and every king of Israel that allowed that to happen. They were like, they were like you know what? That's fine. We'll go ahead and let you continue to worship on the high places, and we won't make you follow the law of Moses that requires temple worship and sacrifice in Jerusalem. That's, and, and of course, we don't live under those particular laws anymore. You understand that. But in Hezekiah's day, that was the case. And all the kings of Judah, almost every king of Judah before him, and every king of Israel before him, just allowed the people just to do whatever that they wanted. Just allowed themselves to be pulled away from that. There will come a time for you as well. And I guess you would say that's my first point of application for you today. You have to be willing to stand alone in order to be a spiritual leader in our culture. You have to be willing. You may not be alone in your job, in your place of business, and what you do in life, and your school, your sports team, whatever it might be, but you have to be willing at some point to say, I am, going to I am willing to stand alone. I am willing to be different, just like Hezekiah was. Number two. When that moment comes, you have to hold fast to historic Christian beliefs. You have to hold fast to historic Christian beliefs. What I love about Hezekiah is that Hezekiah used the law of Moses as, his, as, as the guidance for how he was going to lead the nation. He used the law of Moses. He used his Bible to say, I'm not going to depart from the Lord. I'm not going to depart from what the Word of God tells me to do. You also have to hold fast to historical Christian beliefs and not be easily swayed by all of the trends of our culture. You see, idolatry in our culture might not be little statues that we put in temples and go bow down and pray to them and worship to them. But we still have idols that we have to be careful of. We still have to hold fast to all these beliefs. For example, we must hold fast to a historic Christian belief in marriage and relationships. We have to hold to that. There's some Christian groups that are letting go of that for the sake of their survival. Listen, you cannot survive as a Christian person or as a Christian organization by letting go of things that are distinctively Christian. It just doesn't work that way. We also must hold fast to our Christian beliefs and things like creation. Y'all, I believe that God created this world. Amen? I believe that God spoke this world in existence. He created this world in seven days. He breathed the breath of life into man that he created us in his image. We've got to hold fast to historic Christian beliefs that go back to our Bible, like what we believe about life. I believe every human life 
from conception until natural death is precious in the eyes of God and should be preserved and should not be destroyed. I believe that we've got to hold fast to historical Christian beliefs when it comes to what we believe about gender. This is becoming so confusing in our society. And you want me me to tell you why? Christians, let me tell you why. Because Christian people in Christian churches have let go of what we believe about gender roles in marriage. We don't like Ephesians 5 where it says that the wife is to submit to her husband. We don't, we don't like where it says that the husband is to love his life as uh, his wife as, as Christ loves the church. We kind, of, we kind of dismiss that somewhere along the line 50 years ago during women's liberation movement. We failed to affirm that, yes, women can go in the workplace and do things that men can do. We, 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 we can still affirm that, but yet we let go of what the Bible says about gender roles in marriage. No wonder there's so much gender confusion in our world. Whenever we don't hold to traditional Christian beliefs, historic beliefs in Scripture about gender, about gender roles, We've got, to, we've got to hold the line of, of Christian faith about how we believe that only Jesus saves. Our culture will, will tell us that all roads lead to the same place and that your friend that doesn't believe in Jesus is okay, that they'll have a second chance at some point and ultimately they'll, they'll be fine. We've got to hold to the Christian beliefs. It says that Jesus said that, that he's the only way to God, that no one comes to the Father except through me. We've got to hold the traditional, historic, biblical Christian beliefs and like the reality of hell, that there is a place of judgment. Y'all, these are things, if we're going to be Christian leaders in our world, we've got to hold to these beliefs. And here's, here's the third one I'll say to you. Seek to be a servant. And I want to add to that, seek to be a servant, not a leader. I know that may be surprising to you, but I believe that our culture has elevated leadership and influence and the qualities of leaders and influence to such a point that we see it, it's beyond a moral good. Now as Christians, if we're not careful, we see it as a spiritual requirement. Do you know that there is no place in Scripture where you are commanded to be a strong leader? You're commanded to be godly. That's what the Lord commands of you. You're commanded to be a servant in the same way that Jesus was a servant, just like the scripture that Pastor Andy put on the screen before. He humbled himself and he took the role of a servant. I don't believe that Jesus himself set out to be a leader per se, certainly not leader from a leader from a cultural standpoint as we sometimes define it. He set out to be a servant, and he even told us. He said, let the greatest among you be a servant. He said, the last will be first, and the first shall be last. He, he modeled that before his disciples whenever he washed their feet. Now, do I believe that he had goals? Absolutely. He had a goal to seek and to save the lost. He had a mission to preach Jesus. He had a task to die. But do you know that Jesus doesn't have a great following in our world? Do you know that? You know, estimates say that out of seven, almost eight billion people on our planet, that only ap- approximately two billion people 
claim to be Christian. Now, if there's two billion people that claim to be Christian, and Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, then we have to assume that Jesus has a relatively small following when it, when it comes to the mass number of people that are in our world. And so I don't believe that we're called necessarily to be leaders as much as we're called to be disciples and we're called to influence people to follow our leader. That's really discipleship more than it is leadership. And so what I would encourage you to do today is use whatever position and influence you have in our culture for the glory of God and for His kingdom. There is absolutely nothing wrong with you having influence in our world. God bless you. I believe that, that some of the most influential people that have ever lived named Christ as their Savior. God bless you if, if, uh, if you're a politician or a CEO or if you have great influence or if, if, if uh, you're a professional athlete or, or a scholar or these things. Man, th that, is, that is great. But I pray that the Lord would lead you to use whatever platform you have for the glory of God and for you to pray about how the Lord would have you to do that. We don't want to get to heaven one day only to realize that we separated the sacred and the secular to such an extent that we saw no obligation to use all of our secular resources and influence that we have in this world. We saw no obligation to use those things for an eternal value. I wonder if there's a way that you could think of today, because listen, there will be a point. There, there will come a point in which your leadership will be challenged and you will have to decide, am I going to suffer for Christ? Am I going to sacrifice for Christ? Am I going to have a heart for Jesus? Am I going to look to eternity? Am I going to make a decision right now that I'm going to choose to be a Christian leader rather than a cultural leader? And I'm willing to lose a little cultural influence and power and position and authority in order to work for God and do things that will lead to eternity? These are the things I believe that we see that Hezekiah kind of sets an example for us. And ultimately, Jesus sets the example for us. I remember whenever I got saved, it was about 30 years ago, I had an insatiable desire to read the Bible. I started in Genesis, and I read the whole Bible nonstop, and I finished in about three and a half weeks. And I still remember... Whenever I got to 2 Kings, I remember getting to 2 Kings and I remember thinking, I can't believe the nation split. I can't believe these people are worshiping idols. I was so disappointed. And then whenever none of the kings of Israel, like they all were worshiping idols, I'm like, surely there's going to be a king in Israel that's going to come along and that's going to rescue them. And I was so disappointed when it didn't happen. I was so disappointed when I read in, in 2 Kings, I can't, remember the, uh, I can't remember the chapter, maybe it was, it was 2 Kings chapter uh, 20 or 19 or something like that, I can't remember. Whenever the Assyrians came along and they destroyed the nation of Israel, I was so disappointed. I said, I can't believe this happened. Oh, but we still have Judah, two tribes of Israel, and we've had a couple of good kings. And Hezekiah comes along. Okay, maybe Hezekiah is going to rescue them. Didn't happen. His son that came after him, Manasseh, the worst king, in my opinion, the Bible says worse evil came out of him than any other king of Judah. 
And then Josiah came along, and I thought, okay, Josiah is going to be the king that's going to save his people from the idols. And imagine my disappointment at the end of 2 Kings when it showed that Judah was conquered by Babylon. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked as a new believer when I read that. I was like, I can't believe there's no king that saved his people from idols. It didn't happen until the New Testament when King Jesus came along. King Jesus is the only one that can save. There is never going to be a leader in the White House that's going to save you. There's never going to be a leader in the church house that stands by a pulpit that saves you. There's never going to be a leader that you're going to find in this world, on, on this earth, that is going to provide the salvation that we need. The only person, the only person that is truly worthy of our fellowship is King Jesus. Are you following him? You know, you really can't talk about leadership without talking about fellowship. Are you following Jesus? Are you following King Jesus? Would you allow him to influence you more than any other? And maybe that's where you are today. There's really only really two prayers of response that I have for you today. The first prayer would be for you as a Christian leader to think about how you can apply these, how you can be a countercultural leader in society. Not, it's easy to be a Christian leader around Christians and in a Christian church, but can you be a Christian leader? How is God calling you to do that out in the world where it's really, really difficult, where all of you live day in and day out? How is God calling you to be a leader in your world? And so I want you, I want you to spend time praying about that and then I guess the second prayer response that I would have for you today is, 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 is Jesus your leader? Is he your boss? Is he the Lord of your life? And if not, I hope you'll call upon his name. So let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. And I want to ask you, just in the silence uh, of these moments, uh, just to call on Jesus and to pray whatever the Lord would have you to pray today. If the Lord has called you to pray about your position of influence,